going on? Not too much. Episode Welcome to back. be determined. We don't know how these are going to play in what order. Episode TBD. Yeah. Episode TBD. Today, we're talking about getting into real estate investing. Getting in the game. Getting in the game. Getting your hands dirty. The hardest part. Literally the hardest part. 100%. Getting through that, breaking that wall down, and starting the investment. Yep. So. First topic. Where do you want to start? Down, down payments? Pay- yeah. 100 like getting the money is everything. Yeah. I always tell people finding the deal, that's easy. Finding yeah. the property, managing the property, none of that is as hard as getting the money, especially if you're coming from a situation where money doesn't grow from trees, which a lot of people aren't so fortunate. And if you are, that's great. But I want that tree. I want that tree. <laughs> Plant me that tree. Uh, and again, I think just where we're new, up to you, but I think it'd be cool to kind of tell you quick quick synopsis of you getting your first one. Yeah. Um, so I think I alluded to this in a previous episode. Um, that when I started off, I had just finished a long time in school. So I, w- I got my license and I was, I had a part-time job and I had r- residential real estate sales, but commissioned earnings, typically a lender wants to see three years of consistency there. At the same time, my wife was, you know, working in restaurants while substitute teaching. Um, they also want to see consistent earnings for that for, for a series of years. So, um, we weren't great applicants, but we got a, a, an approval. We still had to come up with a down payment. So for us, it was um, our RSPs and, and taking out all of the money that I had previously put into the stock market, um, which wasn't a lot, but we were piecemealing it together. Um, and our RSPs, because of the first-time homebuyer program, is something that, you know, if you can strategize with it in advance, can be pretty valuable because you can take that money out. Did you ever do that, RSPs? No. I never used RSPs. No. I went to the cash basis way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big stalker investing guy. I, I, I tend to put it all in, uh, in in real estate, as I think I also mentioned one time. But I had started with a couple small little drips when I early was interested in real estate. Um, I had uh, like Rio Can and, and I had Scotia Bank and a few others. Um, nice. Um, and I pulled all that money out. Um, but additionally, I had been putting a small amount into my RRSPs because I thought that was a prudent thing to do, even though I think it's now, in hindsight, kind of silly as a young age to be doing it for the purpose of retirement planning. However, it can be great for real estate. Um, the reason being, as I mentioned, you can take that money out um, tax-free and put it towards the down payment of your house and then pay it back over time. And if you notice at the bottom of your notice of assessment, there is a line that says allowable RRSP contribution. And if you're a young person who has not made contributions to that, even though you're not earning a lot of money, that allowable amount is accruing over time. And I asked my financial planner at the time, I said, what is this? You know, and they said, well, that means you could put more RRSPs in there. I said, well, it's too bad I don't have any money to put into them. Uh, and they said, well, you can get an RRSP loan. So I went out and I got a loan to put more money into the RRSP plan. And the logic behind them is that, you know, we talked about snowballing things and getting things to grow. The more money you can put in earlier, the quicker it'll start growing. So you can get these loans to put in your RRSPs so that they're worth more down the road. Uh, But that ended up coming back around for me quite well because I was able to take that money out later when I wanted to buy my first property. So it was kind of scratching it together uh, from some savings, taking some things out of the market, and an RRSP loan that, that kind of helped me get my first place, which was 5% down. 
That's a neat way of doing it. I think a lot of people do the RRSP. It makes a lot of sense, right? Because you basically save the tax all the way through. Yeah, and if you're working in, especially in the public sector, there's probably some sort of RRSP matching program with yeah. your employer. So you put in a hundred bucks, they put in a hundred bucks. If you do that every pay for a long period of time, it, it helps. It's it's forced savings. It's not too bad. Yeah, yeah, and five percent is not the end of the world. It's more like eight percent once you include closing costs and everything like that. But yeah, it, it's not too out there yet to get to that level. Um, on my end, it was a little bit different because I went before I even had an income, <laughs> a formalized <laughs> yeah. income. So I had like side hustle businesses and things like that. So I was putting together a little bit of cash, but I didn't have a formalized, like stabilized anything where it was like every two weeks that I got any sort of amount of money. So obviously a bank's going to laugh me out the door. Um, so I actually partnered with two other fellows and they had incomes. And so we split the down payment. So we we're actually able to do 20% down on our first place and we used okay. their income to qualify it to make the purchase. So right. it, I didn't get to use any of the programs. And in hindsight, I look back, because there's even the down payment program here uh, where they'll pitch in you yep. 5%. Yeah. Which I, I wish, I was like, man, I wish I, I, I didn't even know about it when I was buying. Yeah, I, I mean, that didn't exist when I was purchasing. Now, I just missed the window of zero money down. You want to talk about like the good old days. <laughs> there was a period where you could get in with zero money down and a 40-year amortization. It's just not the case anymore. Um, so when you partnered up with some some friends, yep. um, were you required to hit 20%? Do you recall if the lender required you to hit 20%? I think it became that yeah. with, with three people's names on there. We actually ended up putting it in a corporation as well. Right. When you have two people, everything was good. Then you can do the 5%. The bank's pretty relaxed. Lawyer's pretty relaxed. Yeah. The second we went to three people, then it became this big, weird situation. The bank's like, yeah, you kind of have to incorporate. You kind of have to do this. And because you're incorporated, then you have to do the 20%. And all these other things started going. And it became quite a bit more of a hassle be honest. Yeah. But again, it was my only opportunity. I was still in university, so I had no like stabilized income that could actually buy a home. Um, and, and so that was my one shot and it, it worked out actually. It, it was good that where we bought and everything like that. And, and I actually, speaking of being in university, this just occurred to me, a buddy of mine, um, if you're in a situation where you have a co-signer, um, and my mother co-signed one of my properties, I think it was my third property that I bought. Um, that's another thing. I mean, I don't know where everyone is at in their investigation and their knowledge base when it comes to buying a property. But you need a certain amount of credit, a certain amount of income, and a certain amount of down payment, essentially, to qualify for a property. And in some cases, you lack the credit. In other cases, you lack the income history. And in other cases, you you may lack the down payment. Um, If it's a credit or income situation, you can add a second person to the mortgage application that may not be residing in the property or really have anything hands-on to do with the property, but can be sort of your your backer, if you will. And um, I had a buddy who his parents were really keen on real estate and they didn't want to give him any money, but they said that they would co-sign for him. And what he did is he went out and he took out a student line of credit. And he used the student line of credit as his down payment, knowing that, yes, you know, his application would get even weaker because not only does he not have credit history and he does not have income, he also just took on this this debt. debt. But his parents could could compensate for that by co-signing. So he took a student line of credit and purchased the property. And what was awesome about that is if you know student line of credits, they're kind of revolving. You can go back to that well um, and, and yearly reapply for more student lines. And because he was at university, all of his buddies needed a place to live. And this is, you hear about these house hacking or whatever you want to call it now. This was just, uh, I bought a place and I'm getting five of my guys, you know, to live with me at 400 bucks a pop. And so he was cash flowing the mortgage, no problem. And also pocketing some money enough that he could then get 
another property in the second year, which is really cool. And he couldn't have done it without his parents co-signing because he didn't have the the credit history or the employment. But it's a really neat little yeah, alternative. It's a clever way of doing it and being smart about it, right? He didn't. He could have taken the money out and gone and bought a car or something. Something that's not going to make <laughs> you any money. Yeah, I guess if you drive over, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I did, I, I would say I did the same thing, but I, like my parents had a co-sign for me on the third one. It, yeah. You, it got, you get to a point where you kind of hit a wall and sometimes you do need the, the bump. Um, but again, that's also, I think a growth rate thing. Like at the end of the day, if you can't find that person, sometimes you get to wait a little bit longer and then you're able to make the move yourself. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like it, it was, it was, for me, it was a number, it was really just a growth. Like I was like, if I wait another year or two, I'll be in a position to do it myself or I can engage a family member, which I was fortunate to have that's willing to co-sign so I can get another one this year. Now, you mentioned the fact that you did not have a job when you started investing in real estate, not a, not a formalized job. <laughs> Thoughts on that. Do you think that diving into real estate um, <laughs> to do it full board? So this is, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question because I get approached. We talked about this. People yep. contact me saying, oh, this is what I want to do and blah, 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 blah. Um, by people contacting me and essentially saying, I have no money, but I'm going to become a real estate investor. Yep. And- I think, you know, there's a lot of products out there and a lot of information about there of how to do it with other people's money and, you know, that you don't need a job or anything to become a real estate investor. And I think that's false and I think it's misleading. And I also think it's short-sighted, but you, you managed to do it. Well, you had side hustles and stuff like and partners. Yeah. No, I, there is no way that I could have done this without a job at the end of the day. So at the start, it only worked because I bought purely investment properties and I had co-signers to help me get off the ground, and I didn't need that money. So all the properties cash flowed. Fortunately enough, in Halifax, when you buy, especially when I was buying, when you were buying, you could buy the cash flow right off the hop. So that worked. But now, like the only reason I've been able to grow is because I've maintained a job, and that's been able to give me the money to dump in to buy more and to do the work that's needed to be done. Yes, I think it was all time. Oh, I, you flip one property and you make a hundred thousand dollars. You do that once a year. Ta da. But it, it's not quite yeah. that simple. It's not consistent. It, the big ones, it's not consistent because you get a hundred grand, let's say in January, you have to have the diligence to not blow that. And then additionally, you're now starting a new project that will likely be a larger budget that will likely require more capital that you're going to have to eat from that. And so I, I think it's a super it's stressful not, way to do it. It's also not bankable. You cannot go to a lender with, yep. the, but I sold a house. They do not care about that. Yep. If you want to make that a business, that's a different thing, but then you're into paying tax on all of that. Um, a lot of people who flip their primary residence, it's primary residence, no capital gains. They get that cash. That's great. It's not employment income then. Exactly. Right? So, and sometimes when people contact me with these ideas, like, you know, I have no money, but I want to become a real estate investor. I say, well, that, that's not a good enough opener for me. Like you have to say, you know, I don't have money, but this is how I'm getting. And it can't just be like OPM and OPM. That's another thing that I had to ask me, like, I don't know what that means. Like other people's money. It's like, um, you know, that's a great idea, but you need your own money in this. You need to have a primary source of revenue, whatever yeah. you want to, that be a hustle, you know, a nine to five, a part-time gig while you're figuring this out, you need to bank some money and have something on paper. That's the same reason I tell people if they're looking to buy a house and they work in the service industry or they work in the you know world of, of arts, I said for the 24 months before you're planning to buy, claim stuff. I know no one likes to claim their tips and no one likes yeah. to, you know, people like to do cash jobs. If you're trying to buy real estate, you've got to bite the bullet on that because I'm telling you the little bit extra you'll pay in income tax, when you then have a cash flowing asset that goes up thousands of dollars a month, you'll be like, oh, maybe I should have paid that. 
$872 of income tax that I tried to avoid. Yeah. You know, it's it's not worthwhile. I, I just, I had a job that I think was paying, when I started in real estate sales, I had a job that paid me $20,000 a year really consistently, which at the time I thought, like, man, I am banking, right? <laughs> um, and then I, I could go out and, and in starting my career, I probably piecemealed another $40,000 in my first kind of year of real estate, yeah. um, not moving mountains by any stretch, but I saved it because I wanted something very badly. And that was to build my wealth. Yeah. You know, like I, we asked a really grandiose question at the end of, of last episode or a previous episode, however, we're structuring these about what yeah. would you do if you had this opportunity or this life changing event come across your, your, your path? Like, yeah. would you be able to capitalize on it or would you be able to, um, you know, pay your way out of some, some Make difficult moves. situation. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I can't remember where I was going with that, but, um, yeah, I, I, I got off topic there, but, you know, I was able to kind of put that a little bit together. Oh yeah. My question along with that is like, you know, how bad do things get, but like, how bad do you want it, man? Yeah. Like you've got to save this together in dribs and drabs and then find some sort of supplementary way. Maybe it's an RSP contribution that you've been making for years. Maybe it's a cosigner. Maybe it's a granny loan from, from a relative, any of these things. Maybe it's a partner, yeah. um, but it starts with you working damn hard and, and trying to have a good job to begin with to make some money. I, I really think there's no shortcuts. People are always asking for the secret to it or the, or the shortcut. Like the secret is there is no secret. It's, it's hard work. The other thing I think to consider, it's real estate investing. Like you, you need to look at it as it's a savings slash investment plan to get started, not as an active job. It's similar to like stocks. I'd say 90% of people that buy equities are buying them as savings. They're not saying, oh, I'm going to buy stocks and now it's my full-time job. Maybe 5% or 10% of those people are actually trading stocks and they start usually living at home or something like that. So same with, with buying real estate. You you kind of need to buy it and be like, this is just my savings that I'm putting here. I still yeah. need a full-time income. I need to manage my whole life and start this as a side hustle Yep. and become good. And I'm going to have to work the evenings and weekends on it. And yep. it's going to be a grind until it gets to a point. But it's going to be pretty big. That's the other thing. I don't think people realize how big it needs to be to actually support oh. a lifestyle. Like even like you see, like yeah. even if you got 50 units, you're only going to cash flow x hundred dollars out of each unit maybe there was always a lot of thought that okay a hundred doors replaces a career yeah that that, that varies a lot by market too right like and it varies by your financing strategy i mean it's different if you've got a hundred doors and you know your loan to value is 60 40 as opposed to 85 15 right like so i don't think there's any um you know magic number but it is a lot of work for a lot of time and unfortunately a lot of people now want minimal work for a short period of time. That's just not how it works. It's going to start with the savings and growing that, you know, and then another thing, like, you know, if you find an opportunity for something, then you could get someone to invest in you. I think if it's the right opportunity, like at some point you had to sell your friends or they had to sell you on this idea of why should the three of us do that? Um, So I think, you know, something like that can get you over the hump. Even if you have to pitch it to your parents, like I had to explain to my parents why they should co-sign this and how, like, I know that, you know, my wife and I'll be fine paying for it, but I just need you to fill out this little form here for the bank's purposes. Yeah. And you're on the hook for the other 400 grand, assuming (laughs) I don't pay it. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. I guess with that being said, a lot of people then consider, okay, if I'm going to go this hard to get something, should I just be making the effort 
to get myself a house because I have a lot of my clients that want to get into investing and I tell them the same sort of thing. I'm like, hey, you get it? Like, you're going to have to bust your ass. If I'm going to go that hard to then get a property but then still live in this crappy apartment, I want to, if I'm going to go that hard, I want to end up enjoying the fruits of my labor and go live in this house. What do you say to that? Do you think that's a good idea or do you think they should be buying a house and taking some equity from that house and trying to go get a rental property or go straight to the rental property and, and forget about lavishing and enjoying yourself for a minute if that's what you really want to do. I, I always think it makes sense to start with the rental property for a couple of reasons. One, if something is a multi-unit property, let's just start simply with a duplex. Yeah. The only way you can get into that with 5% down is if you own or occupy it. As soon as it is not owner occupied, like if it comes with two tenants and you're buying it as pure investment, you're at 20% down. So all the problems we just talked about with down payments and difficulty, you just you know, multiplied that by four, okay? Um, and with a triplex, it's 10% and so on and so forth. Yep. That's the first issue. Um, and then there's like, well, what about the second, the third, and the fourth? It's like, well, if you buy this duplex, owner-occupied, and you can enjoy it there, then when another duplex comes along, you can also purchase that one and move there with 5% down. And then the next year, you can purchase a third and move there. It has to be a realistic story. Like you couldn't buy necessarily three duplexes on the same street within six months because the bank's going to say, I don't think you're owner-occupying all of those. You're an investor at this point. You're going to have to put 20% down. However, um, it is a very real practice and, and a very um, believable story, if you will, a, a sellable narrative to the lender that I'm owner op- occupying this duplex. Now I've purchased a different duplex, be it in a different neighborhood or just time has passed, I'm changing areas. And then I bought a third duplex, maybe the, the, the next year yeah. and so on and so forth. Try going to a bank and saying, well, I purchased this lovely, um, you know, three bedroom, two and a half bath home in the suburbs for 400. Uh, but now I'm going to own or occupy this duplex for 250 grand, um, you know, in this location, that's an hour and a half drive from my, my work. They're not yeah. going to believe that because it's not going to be true. And as a result, they're going to expect you to have 20% down on that property. So how are you going to go from that, you know, how are you going to make that transition? It's harder to get back in after the fact than it is to start with these properties. I agree. And you know, it's funny that you say that. And I, I was kind of under the impression that the banks, like you could just say whatever the hell you want. They never actually look into it. But I have recently heard that they are, they are calling people's bluffs and they are actually sending out like the mortgage insurers are sending out people to go and check and actually see if you're living in the properties. Really? That That is a new phenomenon, and I don't know how they would enforce that because life changes, plans change all the time. Yeah. I've had people legitimately be like, oh my gosh, you know, we we're going to move from this duplex to that duplex. Then we went to move, and we realized just how much we love our own space. What do we do about that? And like, yeah. well, you know, your, chance, your, your plans legitimately changed. Or, you know, someone shows up at their house while they're renovating the new unit and says, well, we would give you $1,800 a month to live here. And like, I, we would be dumb not to take that. Yeah. So that's interesting that, that uh, underwriters are, or they're sending someone out there to, to take a look at that. I recently heard that as of, and I'm, that's what I've said to a lot of people that ask me that question. That's why I say, I'm like, look, you can always come up with some sort of story basically, or it might actually be legitimate on why you, you didn't take that route of necessarily moving into it. But I have been notified by a few brokers that just a heads up, they they will sometimes check in to see if you're actually uh, owner occupying it. Again, what, what would they do? I don't know. Like, what, They're not going to call your loan. Yeah, but, but but just the fact that they're doing that speaks to the fact that they are going to be critical of these now. And part of it is because they're worried in a hot market, which is what we're in right now. People are going to be paying big values for things and they're going to scrutinize 95% financing on these deals a lot more. It's why appraisals are way up, right? Like the banks are saying, we want a second look at this if we're going to loan you almost the entire amount. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, on the flip side though, the reason you like that as a buyer is that you are getting in with the minimal amount. And again, if they're doing that on just standard people going from duplex to duplex, think of how they're going to scrutinize uh, a deal where you're moving from a single family detached home into some duplex. They're just not going to believe that because it's not going to be true. Um, so I'm a big advocate of purchasing the, the rental properties first. I even sort of had a, I don't want to say an agreement with my wife, but I was like, you know, we're going to buy as many rental properties as we can before we bite the bullet and, and buy a single family home, which, you know, she would have very much liked to have purchased that earlier in that list of homes. <laughs> I was putting it off for as long as possible and it yeah. had a lot to do with the financing. Yeah. I knew that we could buy our first duplex with 5% down, which we did. We bought our second with 5% down. We bought a single family home for 5% down. We bought a different single family home for 5% down. Yeah. And it was only after doing all of that when we bought another duplex that the, the lender was like, well, we think actually that, you know, you might be an investor you're now. an investor now, that's going to be 20% down. Um, and we had built enough equity through the accumulation of those four properties that we could do the 20% down. But if we had purchased the single family home first, we wouldn't have got, got started. And like we've, we've said this a couple of times, you've got to get started. You've got yep. to get that process started. I think, I think, I think what it boils down to at the end of the day is by buying the rental, not only are you, it's easier for financing and able to make that step. It's also an income thing because yeah. so you buy a, a duplex and you live in half of it, your monthly costs, instead of it being two grand, if you're getting a thousand of the basement now, it's a thousand bucks. So you're a thousand bucks ahead per month versus you go buy a single family, it's still two grand a month and you're just paying that. That's $12,000 in difference in a year. Totally. That's 5% down on another place for 250K in and, one and year. I, I, so when I was doing all of this and accumulating these properties, all of my friends were moving out to the suburbs and buying nice homes that had things like garages and, you know, hardwood and like a nice kitchen and all that. Yeah, and it was hard sometimes to feel, you know, human nature, right? Like you, you feel jealous yeah. and, and you want to scream like, yeah, but I'm building for my future. And, <laughs> you know, I just knew that that wasn't for me. And I know that to some degree, you know, my wife looked at that and, and kind of wanted to be doing what these other people were doing. And I kind of had to tell her like, it will pay off. Yeah. You know, we do this little bit of hard work now and it will pay off to the point that when it comes time to buy whatever home we want, we'll just be able to buy whatever home we want at that time. Yeah. Um, and we got there eventually, but it did take, you know, it was around when we had four properties that we finally had like a single family home. But yeah. even then, like I bought the crappiest home in the you know, highest appreciating areas humanly possible. And I ripped it to the shreds and I wired it in for two units. Cause in the back of my mind, like, as soon as I leave here, I'm turning this thing into a set of flats. <laughs> I never, I never did ultimately, but, um, even that was kind of viewed as, you know, that was never our forever home. Yeah. Right. So you have to avoid that temptation to, you know, cash those chips in too early. Like if you're committed to this, you have to put in the time and make the sacrifices and, um, you the know. lifestyle in general. It's the same with regular investing and any yep. other business and stuff like that. You kind of have to make those sacrifices. You can't expect to come in, get a big fancy single family home or whatever it may be, and, and then just start making money off of all these things. I to Not to one-up you, but I was 50 units in. The one-upper. Yeah, 50 units in before I ever bought a single family for myself. But it's easier for me because I'm single. Well, you say that in jest, but it's, you know, you do depending on what who you have around you and that who you're, you're partnered with um, in a familial sense, yeah. right? Like, I mean, if I was, if I didn't have my kids and my wife, I would be living in one of my units. Probably I got this <laughs> sweet one bedroom unit with a little rooftop patio. It is a sick unit. Like yeah. I would be living in that unit. Yeah. All other things yeah. said, right? That's, you know, 
thankfully that's not the case for my life. That's where Neil's living. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because uh, the other thing too is once you get in that life of, yeah, I live in this single family home here and, you know, I pay my bills and, and so on and so forth. It's hard to go back. It's hard to go back, man, and start that grind again. Um, so for me, it was just whatever I could afford to do, I would chip one off. And like I said, you know, I tried to do one a year and my goal is to do one a year for 10 years. And I kind of deviated from that only because I was able to scale up a little bit earlier. But yeah, it was hard. It was hard those first few, man. It's, it's not fun. It's, it really isn't. It's similar. I think we touched on it lately last time. It's just like everyone thinks it's passive income. It's not. Yeah. You do have to treat it as a side hustle to get started because you have to maintain something else that actually puts food on the, on the table. Uh, but then you have to take all the sacrifices on top of that to try and get it going. Yeah. Basically, the question is like, hey, w- if you want to do this, would you be able, to, willing to work uh, two jobs to do it? Yeah. It's that simple. That There's no other complicated, shrewd, like, but what about the, the secret that you're going to tell us on this podcast? Like, no, like, would you be willing to work two jobs to make this a reality? Yeah. It's that simple. So. You know, I think the other, another way around it, and this is something that I did, I didn't necessarily live in a lot of my rental properties. I just rented apartments, even though I owned real estate. Yeah. And the reason, but the reason I did that is because then I wanted to live in certain locations that I couldn't necessarily afford the rental property. Like I wanted to live in the downtown core of Halifax. I'm, I can't necessarily afford the rental property as well as I don't see the, the appreciation necessarily and it doesn't really fit my target. So I said, you know, what, I'll just rent an apartment there because I can afford to do that. And I'll, I'll then go out and buy another property and, and rent that and, and be able to keep growing that as a business, keep working my job, enjoy where I live. And then eventually when it makes sense that I can buy where I want to buy, then I'll go and do that. Yeah, and that's the beautiful thing about this too is that, yeah, it took a while before I was able to buy my, you know, first home. Um, but when I did, the mortgage was paid for because these other ones, they're not making a lot of money, but they're making enough between all the others that it paid the mortgage on my single family home. So then I was even in a better situation to continue to stockpile and save, you know, and I was also, it happened, you know, I was, I was fortunate to be like four or five years into my actual career. So now I was very bankable. Yeah. By the time I got through all of those, I was already at a point where I could go out and you know, not only have the equity, but get the loans, right? Like you need to be bankable. You need to have income on paper to get these things. You could just get through that grind. It's, I think it's like about like three to four years. Yeah. Things start to turn and it's, it's such a good feeling when you go back to your property and there's equity in it. Oh, I love it. It's just like, it's just like, oh, there's a hundred grand of cash money here that I can now work with. You know what I mean? Like it's tax free. It's tax free. And it's yeah. and the bank likes it. You like everybody loves it. It's so good. Yeah, and this brings us back a little bit to that question. It's like, well, then when opportunities come across your desk or when you need the money, do you have, you have it? Yeah. Right? You have it because you worked two jobs for that three or four years. Yeah. While your friends were moving out to the burbs, shacking up, doing whatever. Yeah. Buying a nice reliable automobile and, and doing whatnot. Yeah. Like you were working two jobs. Yeah. But it doesn't take that long, man. Like, what's it, four four years? Yeah. Right? Um, and that was my goal with buying one a year. Like, I know you kind of had a different path, but by buying one a year, what was great for me is by the time the fifth year came around, yeah. the equity that had accrued in that first property was, like you said, about $100,000. Yeah. So now, simultaneously, I became, from a banking perspective, an investor. So I had to put 20% down, but also I had the money to do so. Yeah. Right? Um. And that is, in a gist, how I started and got from from there to here and, and scaled yeah. up from there. So, in summary, buy, buy a rental first. Or, like you said, you can do the house hacking if you buy in a place where you can rent all the rooms out and you're comfortable to do that. That's not a bad way to handle it either. 
Um, yeah, totally. If, if, you, if you're comfortable in living in a house with multiple people uh, and you, you, you want to go down that path, that's not a not a bad way of doing it. And I think that that's a lot more common now too because rental properties, if they're labeled as a rental property, the pricing goes insane. Yeah. Right? And so the same house right next door as a single family might be a couple hundred grand less. And the offset isn't as much as it once was because, again, you used to be able to get so much more credit for that rental income. Yeah. Um, you know, and the gap wasn't what it is now and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I always tell people two things. One, the best opportunity. It's like, what should I buy? Like, the yeah. best opportunity. If, if it's your first or your second or you're just starting up, the best opportunity that you can capitalize on, take it. Yeah. Um, at the risk of oversimplifying, real estate is a rock-solid investment. I've never had an investor purchase a property and say, well, gosh, and, you know, I wish I didn't do that because – it almost always works out. It has, in my experience, with just a little bit of know-how and knowing what you're getting into and knowing where you're investing, it will work out. The second thing I try to tell people is it's not an either or. It's a both. Both yeah. and. Right? If someone says, well, I might do this, but then I'm worried that this might come up down the road. It's like, you'll figure out the down the road later. Buy this now and buy that later when it yeah. comes across your desk. But you have to buy the first one. If you ever want to buy the second one, at some point you have to buy the first one. Yeah. Right? I'm notorious. This is my, my, my route. Is I, I put stuff under offer that I can't afford. That's a highly motivating thing to do. And then I firm up on the sale <laughs> without a way of paying for it yet. Don't necessarily recommend to everyone. You have to be under that mindset of handling that. Uh, and this is where my hair is going. But <laughs> that is my, that's like my thing. I don't go too far. Like I'm not going to go out and put an offer on a $20 million building that I have no chance of putting together. But I'll, like if my reach is like right here, I like to shoot like right there. And I don't think that's a good way to start. But once you get rolling, I think you can you can get – because if you do it off the start, that's the problem. Then where are you going to pull from? You really have no avenues. But no. I mean like you know that that is a highly aggressive um, play by someone who is experienced and, and, and has the, the backing you know within to, to, to do it. Yeah. Again, very different from what I was talking about people reaching out and saying, well, I have no money and I want to become a real estate investor. Yeah. Um, but what you're talking about is just how high-performance athletes train, how people have trained their brain for years and years and years. It's goal-setting. Yeah. It's stretch goals. Um, if you look at the fact that you know people thought the four-minute mile was impossible, then one person broke it, and then it was broken like 38 times in the yeah. next 12 months or something ridiculous. Yeah. It is – you know, we talked about this before. It's training your brain to think in a different way and putting yourself in optimal stress situations, which is, holy shit, I got to get this done, um, <laughs> is a good motivating – way. And, and, um, you, sometimes you need that. We're all humans. Like if we don't have deadlines, we will procrastinate. You are not going to procrastinate on a deal that you have waived conditions on. <laughs> you will find a way to get it, it done. Yeah. It's a sink or swim situation. So, and that's how it was with the first property. I still remember when, uh, my wife and I purchased this first property and we were getting some concern from inside of our families, we won't say which side of, of the family, <laughs> about, oh my gosh, this was going to be a, a, a money pit and you know why don't you do something, just buy yourself a nice single family home here and, and, and so on and so forth. And I took that as a personal affront because one, um, it's someone you know trying to tell you how to live your life. And two, I'm like, this is what I do for a living. I sell real estate. And you're trying to tell me that this is not a smart real estate investment. So I was highly motivated to make that property successful. I still own that property today. I, I've mentioned it before. And Christmas dinner, this is what Chandler's talking about. Is this house, how good it is. Um, <laughs> I'm moving the family back into the house. Totally, totally. Um, but 
I, I probably pulled upwards of $150,000 of equity out of that property, probably more yeah. um, in this time. And then when you think of what that equity has then turned into, because you know, if I took 200 grand over that property and spread it over two other properties, which in turn, you know, I took equity out of those and so on and so forth. It's made you millions. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and all it was 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 it the best property in the world? No, but it was a property I could afford at that time. Yeah. So I, I made it happen, and the earlier I can make it happen, the better, because now years have passed and the equity grows. So yeah, the key with the first property is get it the best opportunity that comes across your desk. You know, go in with an intelligent strategy, understand what you're getting into, but get it. You need to get something. You can't overanalyze the deal. Paralysis by analysis. Every now and again, I get a client like that, that they analyze every single deal into the ground. Yeah. Right. You are paying for the opportunity with your first one. So take advantage of the opportunity. And if you want to buy your second, third, your fourth, your fifth, your 12th, you've got to buy the first one. Yeah. You got to bite the bullet and just be prepared that it's not going to be fun and easy and it's going to take some time. I want to ask you something because you casually mentioned there a little while back, and it's kind of off topic for today, but you said appraisals are way up. Do you mean in cost or do um, you mean just numbers that they're returning back? Well, both. But but it's – no, no. I, I meant actually the volume of appraisals. Okay. Like banks are requiring appraisals in instances where in the past they may not ask for an appraisal. Yeah, because they got to verify values now. It's, it's getting to be where it's not an automatic checkmark. Like, yeah, that, that's a house worth three hundred grand. It's Is that worth three hundred grand? Yeah, yeah. It's a – well, you know, it's, it's that sort of – it's – they used to do what are called like drive-by or, or, or auto values, yeah. right? Where people, someone didn't have to, to look at the property. The bank had done enough volume in a specific area and so that- They had complete confidence in the price that you Yeah, paying. yeah. The, 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 the pricing was already bracketed in their comparables, their highs and their lows. It was bracketed in there. It auto-valued, no issue. Things aren't bracketing anymore, right? right. Um, they're busting the brackets. They're setting new brackets, new goalposts. So things are requiring appraisals more right now. Okay. Yeah, I figured that. I figured that's what you meant. I just wanted to kind of clarify. I was curious because I felt like my appraisal costs have also gone up a bunch. Yeah, no doubt because they're <laughs> very busy, and as a result, they're going to charge more. Yeah, I was looking back even just over a year ago. That's like fifty percent up on some of them. Really? But I, it's funny that you say that too. I just did a deal where they were approved all within one day, and the banker came back and he's like, "Wow, it came back approved on auto value." He was like blown away. He's like, I haven't done one of these in two years. Yeah. He's like, I have had to send an appraiser for every deal I've done in the last two years. This was the first one he said. And I was like, well, market is a little bit slower now. So maybe. Yeah. But appraisals become a very important part of the process. It's something that you don't think about. Even if you think you're becoming pretty well informed on, you know, the real estate process and you get this idea of like, okay, and then, you know, at some point it'll be worth more and then I'll get my money back out. Um, That happens by way of an appraisal. And this isn't you know, Neil or I coming by and telling you what your home could sell for on the open market. This is a third party who effectively, not even effectively, who does work for the bank that comes out and says, this is what that property is bankably worth in this market. And then you can borrow against that value. Um, and that's an integral part of the, the whole yeah. thing, you know, um, but even more so than ever before. It's also where as you get into larger scaling things, and we talk about this in another property, your cap rates and, and that sort yeah. of stuff matters a lot when you get to larger numbers. Um, that's another part of the process. and That's something that we won't face necessarily off the start, but it, it becomes more and more prevalent as you go on. Yeah, especially as you get into what's the market rent of a property. You know, okay, I am moving from this property to another, so what's the market rent for the place I'm moving out of? Yeah. Um, it's part of, part of the whole process for sure. 100%. Okay, so with that all being said, you're saying, yeah, like, you should probably buy a rental as your first one or a multi-unit or something that you can live in and live yep. in the other half or other unit. Um, the other thing that I see a lot is people asking then, okay, if I'm not going to live in this thing, I don't really care where it is. 
Yep. And they're shopping outside of the city because they're saying, look, I can buy a fourplex for a third of what I could buy for a duplex in here. Yep. And rents are lower, but they're not proportionately lower. Nope. What's your, what, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that's worthwhile? Do you think, yeah, yeah, go out there and do that. Or do you think it's better to do the, okay, owner occupy it in here? I mean, people are buying out of town. They're still going to lie and go ahead and say that they're owner occupying to the bank. That's what I've seen mm-hmm. a lot of my guys do. Yeah. Uh, they're still pay- putting 5% down on these multis outside of town. I guess, so what people need to start thinking about as they get in this process is, are they more concerned with monthly cash flow or are they concerned with um, appreciation and equity growth? Because yep. those two things are often inversely related. And this comes back to cap rates, which we can delve into in another episode. But essentially, if you have a high value, high appreciating asset in a certain location, um, you tend to pay a premium for that. And as a result, um, your cash flow, your return on your investment is less. That means your cap rate is less. If you go to an alternative area, um, you know that's that's less sought after. That you can buy at a lower price, but still, as, as as Neil mentioned, get really solid rents. Your return on investment is higher. Your cap rate is higher. The flip side of that is there's a reason this over here it has a premium and over here does not, and it's more likely that the premium location is going to continue to grow at a premium rate over the foreseeable future. So. You trade what you trade off in kind of net cash flow month to month, you gain in passive equity growth. Different people have different models. I think what a lot of people try to do when they're starting out is find a nice hybrid of the two. When I was starting off, I intentionally did not buy, intentionally might be generous because I couldn't afford the South End Health (laughs) Act. Um, But, you know, I did not purchase in an area um, that charged a premium because I couldn't float it. Yeah. Um, so I chose a place that at the time, downtown Dartmouth, had that nice combination of, okay, the cash flow is good, yeah. but the upside potential is good. So I don't think there's a wrong answer with either one. I know people who are, have a lot of success with higher cap rate, you know, B and C markets that bank the money and they grow by banking the cash flow and purchasing that way. That's just a different model than what we've talked about, which is equity growth, refinance, buy another property. Yeah. I don't think either one is necessarily better than the other. What I've always said to people is do what you know. Yeah. You know, if you're going to go into one of these markets, you need to become an expert in that market. Right. You can't just pick up and think that you know everything about the Truro rental market and go there because there's a good deal on a triplex there. It's not that simple. You want to know the market. I'm not just saying this because I do this way, but I find the appreciation way is more fun because it's like mystery money. Mystery like, money. <laughs> like, well, because like... Cha-ching. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that, that's a cha-ching for sure. <laughs> but like you're doing your thing, everything's all good. And then you're like, oh yeah, I have this property over here. That's been making me 300 bucks a month. And then you're like, oh, but I also have a hundred grand of equity tied up in there. Yeah. Versus like on the cash flow model, it's like, okay, every month I get my 10 grand, I got to put it in the bank. And if I have 120K here, I can't refinance any of these because they've only appreciated 2%. So there's no money left in these. Yep. So what I got is what I got. Versus it's like, like I, like I said right now, I put one under contract that I can't afford, but I'm going to just go to all my properties and look at them all and be like, all right, there's this, 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 this here. I need a blanket. Give me all this mm-hmm. and I can pull it all out. And it, I don't know. I find it more fun. Probably, again, well, but that also speaks to the fact that's that... Not even, that's nothing business related, just fun. No, no, but, but we um, we talked about this before, how we both like building. Yeah. Like we both, we like renovating. We adding like, value. You know, adding value. We like the creative process of it. Yeah. And in order to be successful at that 
cap rate, BC markets. It's not a creative process. It is a management process. Yeah. And that's fun for some people as well. But you you can overspend in those areas pretty quickly. So yeah. you don't have that um, creative pride-based return on investment that, that you're kind of talking about. Um, that's not to say you can't go there and make nice properties. You just might not enjoy the benefits of them. Like you could put $50,000 into one of those properties and you know what it's worth when you're done? $40,000 more than what you paid for it. Whereas if you put $50,000 over into this other market, it's going to be return you a hundred grand on investment. So again, it's a trade-off. There's nothing wrong with with either model. Um, You just have to know what you're doing in there and you have to, and this is something that, you know, we've kind of been dancing around a little bit. That's exit strategy. And I think if we're talking about first properties in, you have to talk about exit strategy because the whole goal is to not get one. It's to get the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. So anytime I have someone ask me about a property, because people will send this to you, they're probably like, Neil, what do you think of this property? Yeah. You're like, I don't know. I've never seen it, blah, blah. Like I say, what's your exit strategy on it? What I mean by that is how quickly are you going to get the money that you put in back out of the property? It gives me high, high anxiety when I put money into a property and I don't know how I'm going to get it back out. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about essentially moving game. some equity from one property to, to buy a new property. Yeah. But at some point you want to know that you're going to be able to get that equity back out of the property. Do the property. same thing from that one and go to the next. Yeah. And this is why also I'm a big advocate of buying either a downtrodden or a rental or a multi-unit as your first property. Um, because you want to know that you can do some work, you know, be it raising rents, being improving the property, uh, or it's in a great area that you couldn't afford that if it didn't have the rental component, what have you, that you know after a certain period of time it's going to be worth this much more so that you could reasonably expect to get your equity out by way of a re- refinance, you know, ideally within 12 months. Yeah. It's tricky, right? Because if you're putting 5% down, you can only refinance what you have over 20%. That means you effectively need to raise the property by 25% in 12 months. That, that's challenging, but yeah. um, you need that exit strategy of how am I going to go from this property to the next property? And with some of these um, units that are in areas that don't appreciate as well, you put your equity in there, you make cash off it, but it is hard to get back at that equity. The original the original investment is very difficult to get back. Yeah. But I think in some levels, it depends on what your goal is, right? Like if you, like you're saying, if you want to be able to grow extremely fast, that's where you get that high anxiety. On the flip side, I can see for a lot of people how it's a lower stress thing to buy one of these ones where it's high cash flow. Yeah. Because you know what? At the end of the day, like even if one of my tenants leaves or I miss something, there's always cash there to cover all the costs. There's a maintenance item that comes up. Even though I'm going to do the maintenance, I might not see a return on it. I have cash available to do it because I'm cashing a thousand bucks a month out of this place. And so that makes me feel confident versus some of the ones we see. And that's another topic is should you be buying like a a renovated place or a place that you can add value to? Because I have a lot of my clients, again, they're young. They just get together their down payment. And now they're going into this place that's run down and they're going, shit, like if this roof pops or uh, something goes, this furnace blows out, whatever, I have no cash. Mm -hmm. And you just got in and you're only 5% in. So the bank's got no more equity. You're tapped. So I think I think that's I think that's like a thing that both a lot of people have to consider when they're doing it is their stress level, like you're saying, their exit strategy, and I, I think that becomes their growth strategy, right? Like, where am I trying to go with this? Am I trying to do one every year for ten years? Am I just trying to do five by the time I retire? Am I trying to do a hundred within five years? You know what I mean? And this comes back to knowing yourself. You know, yeah. know your market, also know yourself. I am not a great saver. Yeah, I save best either under stress and deadline. Yeah, or 
through forced savings, which yep. there's no better forced savings than real estate. If I had a cash flow property that was really just banking, you know, putting money in my pocket yep. month to month, I don't know that I would put that um, that money aside yep. to purchase something else as well as I would do if the money just sat there in the property. Yeah. So again, know yourself. If you are someone who can take that cash flow and will save it to buy another one, that's great. You need to know that about yourself. I know that I'm not that way. Yeah. So I need equity growth. You know, my cash flow month to month, I'm very fortunate. I've got a job that can take care of that. Yeah. You know, I'm concerned with equity growth in the property, getting my investment back and doing it again and again. Uh, and I think in general, I mean, not that there's a wrong or a right. I think in general, when you look at a lot of these big big REITs, big investors, big developers, big and like pretty much everyone that's large in this business, the path that seems to pay the most is the equity-based route. Yeah. And, and this also brings us back to the point, like you need equity, you know, to have cash, have a job, have something you bring to the table and long-term, you know, I, I guess it's hard to get this started, but you need to start building the equity model at some point. The other thing I think that we haven't even touched on, but with the equity, sorry, playing a little footsies there. Uh, the equity model, it's compounding, which I think, yep. like, so when you think about it, so like, let's say you buy something for 100 grand today, then it's worth 200 grand. And if it goes up by 2%, that's 4K. That's actually 4% on your original investment. And so in the long term, it really starts to play a lot bigger versus, again, in, in a low appreciation area, your rents don't appreciate and your value doesn't appreciate. At first, it's it's great. But then in 20 years, when you're still only cash flowing, a thousand bucks a month or 1100 yeah. bucks a month, you haven't really gotten any further forward. Right. And so you're kind of in the same, you're in that same return that you always made. It's more like a fixed, it's like a fixed return. It's like a bond basically. Like it's not, it's, you, and that's where you lose yeah. it. Right. Yeah. You're getting, you're getting pay down only. Um, also there's something to be said for if you purchase a bigger asset, you know, you're appreciating from a larger base to begin with. Yeah. Right. Um, so there, there's something for that too. Again, I think we can't stress enough though, that there's no right or wrong answer. Like we're telling people to be innovative. We're telling people to, you know, take what opportunity comes across their desk. If that is a high, you know, cash flowing deal outside of the core, then do that, but get the expertise to do it uh, in the best possible way. You know, in these al- other markets, um, one, you can typically be more aggressive with sellers than you could be um, in, in hotter markets too, as you scale up to bigger properties, sellers are going to be far more likely to hold paper or give advantageous financing terms, things like that. Yep. So, you know, if you're going to go there, be an expert and, and crush it there. And I think that's very doable. You know, again, we're just talking pros and cons and stuff. Cause there's no, there's no right or wrong way. There's no right or wrong way. You just have to buy a duplex in the downtown of your city, <laughs> live it, live in half of it. Yeah. And then buy your next one within a year, do 5% down on both of them. No yeah. right or wrong way though. Yeah. Anything just, goes. Just do it exactly <laughs> that way. Subject to any other way. But also that way. on a side note, just to address what you said there, when you say hold paper, you're talking about a vendor take back, yeah. which would be like when a seller offers some level of financing to assist you in purchasing the property. We'll do a whole other episode on, on vendor financing, but. Yeah. And that's not really something that's going to apply to your first one necessarily, yeah. like, like your first uh, duplex or something like that. But uh, again, sometimes those are opportunities that exist in these other markets because you'll go to a lot of these towns and there's like one or two guys that own the whole town and they're often, you know, 70 odd years old yep. and they're in the family like, well, we're looking to wrap this up, but there's no one around here that uh, wants to buy these apartments yep. and they haven't gone up a dime since the day we bought them really, or, or maybe they have, but not at the rate that you'd see in other areas, but we've paid them down. So we want to like cash in on this a little bit and they would love a young person to come along and say, Hey, 
I'll you know, I'm looking up. to do this, yeah. um, but I need you to work with me um, by way of a vendor take back mortgage. Again, that's a, a topic for another day, but you know, to start thinking about where we're going, if, if this is where we're starting with trying to get your foot in the door with virtually anything, but I think if you could get a multi-unit with 5% down in an area that hopefully has some upside and then continue that model for a little while, I think that's a great way to start. Long-term scaling up, you know, scaling up, you start looking at the numbers. Uh, it becomes a little bit less subjective. It becomes a little more math-based and you do start to balance that cash flow versus appreciation a little bit differently. Um, and so we'll get into that in, in a future. Real estate's a huge so. math game. That's what I liked about it. Yeah. It's, it's funny how it really boils down. And it, like you said, it gets way more apparent as it grows because you're literally like, everything's on a spreadsheet. I, I know what I'm going into it for. I know what I'm coming out of it with. Like it's, it's just a matter of time and following my spreadsheet. Yeah. The one I like best though um, is cash on cash and like exit strategies, the, the math on that stuff. Because um, the, the problem with cap rates, especially in a yeah, market like this, you know, there's nothing worse than paralysis by analysis. And I know I said it before, I'm not trying to harp on it, but people who analyze an opportunity to the point that they just cannot pull the trigger on it. At some point, this is a very guttural, instinctual, aggressive game. industry. Yeah. It's an emotional thing. And, you know, you have to pull the trigger on, on these things and you have to, if you're thinking about they're huge you know, numbers and they're more money than you have. That's the thing. Like it's like yeah. a multiple of like, if you're putting 5% down, it's a multiple of 20 times the money that you have. Yep. So it's a massive, Yeah. it's massively emotional outside of all, even if you know all the fundamentals make sense. Yeah. At some point though, you got to get out of your way, your own yep. way, right? You got to, you got to buy something. And you know, the beauty of real estate is, you know, and, and when I was starting to purchase these properties and, you know, my friends were out and buying, you know, the nice new single family home with the garage and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, they also said, well, my gosh, you're, you're being so risky getting all these mortgages. You're, you're, you're so at risk. Um, you know, between your properties, you probably have like a million dollars that you owe. <laughs> like, yeah, but I've got 20% equity now in all of them. Yeah. Right. So. I'm far less exposed than they are out in, you know, their single family home that they maybe are like 90% leveraged on. Yep. So they have a smaller mortgage, but way less equity. The beauty with real estate is you're always going to need a place to live. So if you have a place that you own, you always have a roof over your head and yep. everyone else is always going to need a place to live as well. So there will be demand for what you have. The other thing I think to consider too is the bank is not in the business of taking your real estate and selling it. No. They want to work with you to make sure that this thing works. Like, I mean. Sometimes it doesn't yeah. seem like it when you're going to borrow the money. Yeah. I don't want to put foreclosure out into the world as, as even a word that people want to hear about, but it is incredibly difficult for a bank to foreclose on you. Not because they don't have the right to do it, but because it is the last thing they, they don't want, want to do. They know that, they're, oh. that that's their worst option. That's their worst return. Yeah. Their best case is that they can somehow make you float through this thing and then they can sell it off and get a check back or carry forward their money. Like they don't want to be seeing that house. They, they, yeah, that's yeah. an attestment that they don't want. So I don't, I think that everyone has, goes into it with like a big, scary bank. Like they're going to take your properties. That's how it was fed to me by my parents. My parents were just like, oh, you know that the bank can take your house. And I'm like, I understand that. I understand if I don't make the payments, they're going to take this property back. There are a lot of um, families in Halifax that um, are second or third generation immigrant families at this point who for a long period of time dominated and still, still do kind of the real estate market here. Um, 
disproportionately uh, um, to to people who maybe their families have been here for, for longer. And I talked to a friend of mine and I asked why that was when I was kind of starting out and, you know, I would try to pick anyone's brain who, uh, you know, knew more than me, which was almost anyone at the time. Um, I said, why is that the case? Like your family was able to do this. Your cousins were able to do this. Um, these people who have the same last name as you, but spelled slightly different were able to do like, you know, all, <laughs> how did all of you guys at, at once I'll know this. And it's a very different thing. You know, being raised in the traditional Western world, you're always taught to be afraid that you're going to lose everything, mm-hmm. that you're going to lose everything. Oh my gosh. You know, you lose the shirt off your back, blah, 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 Spent blah. Spent your whole life building it up. You don't want to lose it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of these families, I mean, think of the like cojones it takes to relocate your family across the world, often coming from a very difficult situation. Um, and then- Someone says, I'm going to give you all this money, uh, but you better pay it back or else we'll take everything you have. They're going to be like, that's not scary to me. <laughs> One, you know, I've, yeah. I've seen a lot worse. And two, I don't necessarily have anything anyway. Yeah, yeah I've right? already lost it all. So, so let's do this thing. you know, they were able to take <laughs> these risks that to people who had a different background um, were, were more risk averse. Yeah. Right. And um, first world got comfortable. I found that incredibly, incredibly interesting because my family was like right in that middle class sentimentality of like, yes, you'd love to be, you know, better off, but the even worse than that would be the idea of falling out of the middle class. And it's it's they're paralyzed in, in that sort of mindset. Whereas these um, you know, first and second generation immigrant families were willing to take more of these risks. They were way more entrepreneurial. Um, and look how it paid off. You know, a lot of things have to go right for that to happen, you know, market booms and all this, but it, it starts with having the guts to go for it. They work their holes off too. I, oh. I think they come with a different work ethic, but it's totally. funny you say that. The, the fear of loss outweighs the like joy of success, I guess you would say. Um, and that, that plays in a lot of factors. They say that, like, I mean, as an aside with school, they said that the, the students on average that did more like poorly uh, were more open to take like big risks in business. Um, oh, I believe that for sure. Because they weren't afraid to lose. They said a lot of times, like kids that came out of high school with like a 99 average, uh, actually kind of went into normal jobs. Yeah. And the guys that didn't necessarily have the 99 average went into these crazy positions down the road because they they know what it is to lose. They're not afraid of it. They're not afraid to stare it in the eyes and take the risk and go for it. Versus if you've always just everything's been good, you've always had an, uh, you've always passed everything, you've always done great, or you've always lived well. The fear of losing that is well, well, like you said, it'll paralyze you from being able to make the moves or take any sort of risk because you don't want a chance screwing up what you've gotten used to. This is also my favorite thing about real estate. And I really enjoyed it about real estate sales. On the one hand, there's so much, you know, nepotism and family backing and all that stuff that as someone who didn't have that, I'm like, oh my God, like, I can't believe, you know, so-and-so essentially just you know, bought a hundred unit building because their family had the money and I could never do that. And, you know, I'm going to have to climb my way up to that. Like, well, that's frustrating. At the same time, man, real estate is a great equalizer. If you want to be first generation wealth, you know, for your family line, real estate's a great way to do it. And real estate sales is funny too, because, you know, it does not discriminate on on your background or whatever, you know, in terms like if you want to go out there and bust your ass and, and, and make sales, like, and you have some sort of acumen to, to do that, you can do it. Yep. And again, a lot of what we'll talk about over and over again, it is not, um, it is not information that you would only get if you were in that top, you know, 95% on every test person in high school, Yeah. right? It is simple ideas applied with, you know, gusto. 
yep. and then done over and over again and, and repeated and taking those risks. So it is a, a real equalizer. While it sustains for generations and generations, um, there's also a good opportunity for you to get up there and be part of that. Yep. Um, and that's what I love about it, man. I love it. I love seeing like I've got buddies who, you know, started young and, and just done so good and have made so much money off of real estate. And I love seeing that. Um, I'm proud of what they've done and they're proud of what I've done. And it's, it's super cool, man. I agree. I mean, that was, again, that's why I think both of us probably got into it, honestly, because I, I, I know a lot of my colleagues and friends, same thing. They, they might've been second gen or whatever. And I was like, how in the world can I get there? I, you know, this is an opportunity to get there in an expedited manner and, and, and anyone can do it. Like it doesn't discriminate on who you are or what you do. And you, I mean, you start smaller but the opportunity to get there to a level that's actually recognizable is fairly quick. Just like we're saying, you got to start with one property before you can have two and a three. If if you want your grandkids to be wealthy, you got to get started on it here now, man. <laughs> Someone's got to be the first generation to do it. So why not you? Why not you? Um, with these things being said, and on the topic again of people trying to get their first place together, getting their down payment together long term, what do you think is the biggest mistake that you see people making when they're buying their first one, trying to buy their first one? Like in that, in that wheelhouse, like they're getting rolling and like what, where are they making mistakes um, commonly? Well, th- this is going to be, I'm biased obviously. I was saying, but our, our clients never make mistakes because they're, <laughs> they're our clients. Because we're, we're guiding them. That's um, <laughs> in, you say that in jest, but yep. n- not getting accurate, reliable, true well-intentioned information up front is just, the biggest mistake. You could flash our business cards up here on the screen right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what do I got to do to get you in this property? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that can come from anywhere. That, that can, Like surrounding yourself with the right people and we're going to do something on this about building your team, not in this like, oh, I've got a team, I'm so fancy, blah, 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 but surrounding yourself with people who genuinely know what you want to do and have your best interests at heart. Um, that's the biggest mistake is people kind of just say, you know, they're either because they're not working with the right genuine people around them or they're too prideful to ask for help. We'll just go into it and be like, I know best, or I think this is best and no one's telling me opposite. So I'm just going to do this. That's kind of the mistake that I see out there most. I, I would agree with that. I'm going to add one thing in saying that I think people go to the wrong people and not necessarily just because they're not necessarily true people or honest people or the right people in that sense. I think one thing a lot of people overlook uh, and this is a saying that I say a lot and it might sound a little douchey, but don't I'm take sure it. it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't take advice on how to buy a Rolls Royce from someone who drives a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I mean, I, I don't like, and, and that's That can apply to a million things. Oh my God. And, and I'll probably take some heat for this, but like my thing is if I go to the bank advisor sitting at the, at the desk over at whatever CIBC, he's telling me how to invest my money and there's a good chance that I have more money than he does. And I'm not saying that to be pretentious, but honestly, and, and so I struggle to say, look, I've made great returns on all these investments that I made decisions on. So at some point I'm like, mm. so that's when, again, then you go to different banking stuff, but. I guess I'd add a caveat to that is talk, yeah. don't, don't talk to the guy, you know, whatever your analogy was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> talk, talk to the guy though, that, that had a Toyota or a Nissan or whatever it was yeah. and got the Rolls Royce. Exactly. Right. Yes. Like, yeah. That built it. Exactly. Yeah. Because at some point someone's going to say something ridiculous like, well, all you need is you just like pull together a quick hundred thousand dollars and you go and get yourself. It's yeah. like, oh, well that doesn't really relate to me. So there yeah. is that kind of, kind of balance, but a hundred percent. 
I mean, surround yourself with people and pick the brain of people who have done it before. You got it. Exactly. You want to find people that have done from your situation and gone up because you're wasting your time and your breath. If you go into, like you said, not to pick on these people, but second or third generation and they're in the business and you're like, oh my God, like how are you buying all these rental properties? Well, it's because he already has like 50 that he got handed down that he has all this equity in. Right. So you got to find someone like yourself, like you said, that that's done that growth and that can help you with with that because they have the personal experience and the understanding and a lot of times you know what they're more than willing to share that 100 percent. i've obviously like when i sit down with buyers for the first time and i say listen um you're now about to buy a home yeah you're going to start looking you're going to tell everyone you know yeah and they're going to be very interested and they're going to give you all kinds of free advice right it's free and it's worth what you pay for it right because <laughs> unless someone is doing specifically what you're doing yeah their information is is irrelevant yeah like if you ask someone who hasn't purchased a home in the last five years, yeah. what are they going to tell you about today's market that is at all relevant? Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Nothing. Rates are different. Lending terms are different. The market's different. Locations are different. Everything is different. Um, so, you know, you want to both speak to people who have, you know, um, are, are ahead of you yeah. and learn how they're getting where, where they're getting. Uh, how, how they got where they, where they are. Um, and then also find the expertise in this moment and then realize that you may do things slightly different because that's what's best for you. And that is perfectly fine. Yep. Find your competitive advantage, find out what motivates you and do that while seeking expertise, not advice, expertise. There's a massive difference between expertise and advice. Yep. Agreed. We're a little tight on time. I'm going to pose it to you. What's the, uh, the question that you're going to leave people off to think about? Okay. Well, we're talking a lot today kind of about uh, what we did and and, and, and whatnot. So yeah. I think what people listening to this today should think about is if they could go back in time 12 months and give themselves some advice, the them from 12 months ago, what would you tell yourself 12 months ago? And in thinking about that, think about how that could change the next 12 months of your life. Right? We're talking with these things and sometimes they feel out of touch, but it's amazing. It's incredible what you can do in 12 months. Yeah. Um, and maybe that starts today. Sure, it could have started 12 months ago. Think about what you would have told yourself and then we'll start applying it today. Exactly. Don't cry over spilt milk. Start now. Yeah. Never too late. Yeah. Well, you know. All the cliche sayings. Man, I, like I'm doing this micro experiment with, with my own child. Um <laughs> Because, uh, like, I, I find. I don't know if this should be on public. Uh, uh, <laughs> Jesus. Um, like, I, you know, I think you and I are both into um, betterment and improving and, and yeah. constant learning and all of this. And I can't remember if I mentioned this before or not. But, you know, my son, you know, you never know what your kids are going to be interested in. You sort of have these ideas like, oh, you know, man, I'd love my son to be a left handed shot defenseman, you know, or a pass first point guard or whatever. Yeah. And then they're just not interested in hockey or, or basketball. Yeah. You're like, well, gosh, you know, what are, what are we going to do? My son is big into skateboarding. And my whole thing is like, if you're into something or if you're going to do something, do all I care well. about is, is you do it well. You yeah. do it 110%. So over the last year, I've gotten to see this kid steadily improve. Quite right? a bit. Um, and all it has been is I've given him the opportunity to practice and get better with regularity, right? Because repetition breeds expertise, which, you know, leads to success. And seeing him do that in one year, it's like, man, like this reinforces everything that I believe and don't necessarily apply to myself, but it's amazing <laughs> what you can do in one year's time, right? Yeah. It's incredible what you can do in a year. Um, so I think that's a great question and something uh, for people to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll give our responses at the start of the next one. 
All right, sounds good. Signing off. Onward and upward. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome.